Hello, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. And a bit of an impromptu episode this week, inspired by the most filmically important thing that's happened to me in the last five or seven days, which is that I went and saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the new Indiana Jones film starring Harrison Ford, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, etc., etc. Now, we're in the summer months here. Episodic inspiration can be taking a back seat from time to time with family obligations, work, summer balance, all that kind of stuff. So am I as regular in the podcasting sense as I would like to be week in and week out like a metronome, like you've come to expect? Not really. But inspiration moved me brightly. We'll get there. I've got a couple other episodes I've got in mind, but I wanted to just quickly Record this because, not because I am that schadenfreude guy, because I'm not. If you listen, you know I'm the first person in the theater for Top Gun Maverick. Okay, I'm the first person in the theater for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm here for this. I'm here for the franchise. I'm here for Harrison Ford revisiting iconic roles, much as he did to greater effect in Blade Runner 2049. We'll talk about that in a bit. So I'm not here piling on. I'm not here to throw gasoline on some kind of fire where the work of so many talented artisans and creatives and studio executives goes into the making of a massive would-be blockbuster film at a price tag of $300 million, reportedly. But the sad fact is, the film is a bust. And, you know, on Twitter, there are indie stands who can't accept that fact and who are so narrow-minded in their dedication to the character that they have taken the position that it's everybody else who's crazy. This is a brilliant film. I saw it three times. I saw one guy trumpeting that he'd seen it three times, probably to figure out what the hell's going on in the plot. But the fact of the matter is that this film is only going to appeal to the most diehard Indiana Jones fans. Those people for whom Indiana Jones is not a pleasant diversion of 1980s cinema, uh, a rollicking comic book style George Lucas adventure that we grew up on in 81. For these people, Indiana Jones is like a whole other thing. It's their Star Wars. It's taken on a size and weight disproportionate to the size and the weight of the material, even in the classic original two films. Which, like many George Lucas entertainments, are, you know, comic book fodder. It's okay. There's room for that. Now, this is the first of the Indiana Jones films not to be directed by Steven Spielberg. We will be talking more about that because I believe that's an incredibly salient fact. 
But just generally, overall, if you haven't seen the film, I would say I'm not going to give you any spoilers. But I, I honestly, and I'm not even, I'm not trying to be, I'm not joking here. I couldn't even describe to you the plot of this. I, I mean, I can try and give you the fact that we there's some kind of a you need a MacGuffin in an Indiana Jones film tied to history. In this case, we have a, t- a time turner type device apparently created by uh, Archimedes who I don't know why he wanted to create this thing, I guess, to get people to visit him, to help him win this war in Syracuse. Um, but of course there's a Nazi played by Mads Mikkelsen who wants this thing in order to go back in time, kill Hitler, take over Hitler's position and become a godlike entity. Uh, there's a bizarre like, CIA, rogue CIA cell involved in this on the Nazi side, I guess. On and on and on. It it really doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's what, two hours and 45, it's 154 minutes. I can't do the math there. If it was two hours, it'd be 120 minutes. So it's two hours and 34 minutes. Is there even a good movie in here at 120 minutes? I don't know. I don't believe so. I think that the errors that were made were made at critical junctures long ago, and they are insurmountable in the final product. Unfortunately, it's a big bummer. It's a big bummer. I mean, Indiana Jones deserves better. Harrison Ford deserves better. Karen Allen deserves better. Mutt deserves better. Shia LaBeouf deserves better. It's kind of shocking. Everyone is cultured to understand that the Crystal Skull Shia LaBeouf outing was a huge disaster, but it made $800 million. (laughs) It made $800 million compared to the current box office of Dial of Destiny stands at about $160 million worldwide. Now, of course, relatively speaking, that's an obscene amount of money. Obscene. But the reality is, it's a massive disappointment. It's a flop. I'm speaking purely economically. Because when you have a $300 million film, you need a hell of a lot more than that on the opening weekend, than $160 million. You need a hell of a lot more than a $60 million domestic opening, which is what the film garnered in the United States. And it's a, it's a disappointment. And much like in a future episode, I'm going to be talking about The Godfather, The Godfather 2, and not really talking about The Godfather 3, but talking about different ways of sequeling iconic films that might have garnered a better result. Now, in the case of Indiana Jones, obviously the character of Mutt, as played by Shia LaBeouf in the Crystal Skull film, is complicated beyond the fact that the movie was considered critically a disappointment. But again... It made its money. So, I mean, 
the, a, a film like that could justify a sequel unto itself, making that kind of money. Now, it was directed by Steven Spielberg. So I haven't watched Crystal Skull in a while, but I bet you it's a hell of a lot more fun. And I'm going to use the word fun because isn't that what we should be having when we go to see Indiana Jones first and foremost? More than Star Wars, right? Indiana Jones should be fun. It should be a fun night at the movies. And I'm here to tell you, reader, it is a slog, okay? It's a slog. The pacing, the staging, the stakes, the lack of emotional connection between the characters, on and on and on. It's just a colossal failure. And of course, given the stakes for the franchise, for the acquisition of Lucasfilm by Walt Disney Studios. This has a lot of repercussions that will leave some tendrils dangling out there as it gets resolved. Now, I saw on Twitter someone, I, I posted something about, <laughs> I, I admittedly, this is not what I'm, I'm not proud of this, but I admittedly, um, thought that a post was so ridiculous from someone who posted that they had taken the third trip to see Dial of Destiny. And he writes, reasonable people can disagree about relative quality, but at this point, I'm convinced most of the hair on fire negativity surrounding the flick is just more performative vitriol. To which I sort of said, like, absolutely, totally performative. Just like announcing you've seen an objectively bad and bombing sequel three times would be performatively whatever, <laughs> right? Like, trumpeting that you've seen it three times is as performative as hair-on-fire negativity, which I guess, uh, if you have the take that I'm having, I'm you're, you're guilty of hair-on-fire negativity. But what, you know, someone then said, because I'd used the word, it's an, I said that it was objectively bad, which I, which I believe it is. As a film, it's objectively bad. It's poorly executed. Uh, someone said subjective. I said, well, the box office doesn't lie. And they said, well, you, you know, they hit me with the box office does lie unless you think the box office returned for films like Seven, Blade Runner, Shawshank Redemption, Fight Club, Children of Men, and The Thing says much which is, of course, a total false equivalency because those films were always going to be hard-to-market films that defied easy categorization. All of those films this person mentions, Seven, Blade Runner, Shawshank, Fight Club, Children of Men, The Thing, none of those are a $300 million tentpole blockbuster summer movie designed to make a billion dollars. None of those movies are that. And so the comparison does not hold up. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is not a thorny masterpiece of genre-defying artistic accomplishment that needs the audience to catch up to it. <laughs> like The Thing. It's, it's just a badly executed movie that appeals mostly to the diehard Indiana Jones fans, as I said. 
And that's fine. But there are not enough of them to justify a $300 million expenditure. And the fact that the studio kind of wasn't aware of that or talked themselves around that is what's going to be fascinating to follow in the fallout, if there is any. $300 million is a rounding error to Walt Disney. $300 million is probably a day, a day's take at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. So they can certainly afford it. And they can afford to get it right in the future, which perhaps they will do. It is certainly set up very ideally, if he ever wanted to do it, for Steven Spielberg to come back because... Number one, having made $800 million on a film that even diehard Indiana Jones fans don't love in The Crystal Skull, anything less than a billion, right, is, is going to be seen as whatever it's going to be seen as. Whereas now, given that James Mangold took over the directing chair, whatever happens after this, if there's a Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Indiana Jones or an Indiana Jones-type character... Uh, and Spielberg were to return with an appropriate script, maybe it would work. We'll see. Now, some of the cues, or some of the clues, rather, when I started reading about the making of this film, you can read, like, the Wikipedia page, and you can kind of see where things start to go wrong. Not that convoluted development hell for any film means the film is necessarily going to be a convoluted mess. Sometimes films go through this process and end up as masterpieces, um, you know, like The Godfather, for example, which went through every director in town. And it's kind of the challenge in discussing The Godfather is sort of you have to separate the myth from the reality. And the reality is very pedestrian and people don't really want to hear it because the myth is so much better. The reality is Francis Ford Coppola is the last game in town that they, can, they could even get to direct the film. <laughs> they, they, everyone else passed. Um, so anyway, apparently reading from Wikipedia plans for a fifth Indiana Jones film date back to the late seventies when Lucas and Spielberg negotiated with Paramount for four sequels to the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, which came out in 1981. Lucas began researching potential plot devices for a fifth film in 2008, although the project stalled. Now, here's where it gets into all the writers and the turnaround. You basically have, and I, I, I sort of, one of the few times I laughed out loud in watching this film, as I did, and I actually saw it at a drive-in, by the way, which I mean, to me, I guess you could argue my reaction and say, well, you didn't see it in its proper format. You didn't see it in a real cinema, you know, with the sound and the image quality, but I mean, if you're ever predisposed to have a good time at the movies, it's at a drive-in on a summer night with popcorn and soda and candy, your family and friends around you. That's, that's how we saw this movie. And the consensus from everyone was the same. So it's, it's not as if I'm an outlier here. Uh, so anyway, once you start reading um, about... Oh, uh, I was going to say, I laughed out loud because the there were four names on the written by card during the credits. And I think that's always kind of a, a danger sign. So you have David Kep, who wrote the Crystal Skull film for Spielberg. 
but he was kind of not involved once James Mangold took over. So he's there from previous iterations of the script that he worked on with Spielberg when Spielberg was still attached to direct this. And Jez Butterworth, the playwright, and his brother, John Henry Butterworth, were brought aboard uh, by Mangold to work on the story to Mangold it up, I guess. And when you start to read about all of the labyrinthine issues you know, you got a lot of things here, right? You got Harrison Ford, who's a massive movie star for decades. And I guess it took 20 or so years for the kingdom, what's the name of it? Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which was the 2008 iteration. It took 20 years for that to come out from uh, the last film that came out before that. And I guess he had said he'll do another one, but he's not going to wait 20 years. So I guess, ironically, that's what he did end up doing. But Lucas and Spielberg worked on this uh, through 2008. And basically, Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Company bought Lucasfilm in 2012. And by 2012 the project has really stalled. Like um, Lucas and Spielberg had kicked around various ways of doing it. But, oh, and this is an interesting quote. Lucas said, quote, speaking about the previous film and the franchise's future, Lucas said, quote, we still have the issues about the direction we'd like to take. I'm in the future. Steven's in the past. He's trying to drag it back to the way they were. I'm trying to push it to a whole different place. So still we have a sort of tension. So well, I think what he's referring to is where are we going to set the film? And maybe that's indicative that Lucas was interested in a sort of time travel device. But anyway, in 2012, the Disney company buys Lucasfilm, which means they now own the rights to Indiana Jones. And of course, when you make a major purchase, such as Lucasfilm, part of what you're going to start doing is you're going to start monetizing the IP, intellectual property. In addition, a year later, in 2013, showing the path forward, Disney bought the distribution rights to any future Indiana Jones films from Paramount, uh, who had distributed and made the first... Uh, how many films were there? Four? Are there three before Shia? I guess there is. There's the Sean Connery one, right? Um, so I guess there's no, there's three. How many, how many, how many freaking films are there? Let's see. Indiana Jones. Raiders of the Lost Ark, 81. Temple of Doom, 84. Last Crusade, totally forgot that. It's the one I just mentioned. 89. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, 2008. Dial of Destiny, 2023. And let's not forget the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles from 1992 to 1993, which has a lot of a lot of fans. So Disney was so serious about monetizing the IP, they were going to buy back the distribution rights so that they could control the world. And basically, once Lucasfilm sold, it sounds like Lucas stepped out. Um, and Kathleen Kennedy was going to helm, not helm, but 
shepherd this project through. So in 2015, it was announced that Disney slash Lucasfilm would make another Indiana Jones film. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I guess I don't remember it that well. I guess it leaves Indy in a good in a good spot. He's married. Um, but you know, it doesn't it doesn't wrap up the history of the character, and it's it's not the concluding finale, the the send-off that uh that would be so great to have for this iconic film character who let's remember was always kind of, he's always out of his time like the you know eight for 81 to have a film like this hit is kind of amazing and great and obviously a testament to Spielberg Lucas Harrison Ford and all of the charisma and humor and action practical action that was on screen you know that's not the era that you would think this serialized magazine style film would hit, but it did. So obviously there's money to be made. There's IP to be developed. Um, and originally the film was going to be directed by Spielberg and it was going to come out in the summer of 2019 um, David Kep had written the screenplay, working with Spielberg, and ultimately Lucas was attached as an executive producer with Spielberg saying, quote, I would never make an Indiana Jones film without George Lucas. That would be insane. But then later in 2016, it was announced that Lucas would have no involvement with Marshall stating two years later that, quote, life changes and we're moving on. He moved on. Okay. So come the summer of 2019, guess what? It's not coming out. We're pushing it to 2020. Spielberg's working on other movies. Uh, but he did set it as his next film after he made The Post in 2017. However, final script wasn't approved. So they kind of went back to the drawing board and they brought aboard Jonathan Kasdan to replace screenwriter David Kep in 2018. And now the release date was pushed to 2021. But Kasdan departed. They sifted through a couple of other writers. Kep rejoined the production, stating that, quote, the filmmakers had a good idea this time, end quote, I don't think David, I think David Kep was putting some shade in his tea there. Um, it says that Kep ultimately wrote two versions of the film, but neither were approved. He said that efforts to produce the film had failed because of disagreement between Spielberg, Ford, and Disney regarding the script. Then in 2020, Spielberg steps down. He's not directing the film. And James Mangold is brought aboard. He had worked on... Uh, Ford Ford v Ferrari, and he had worked with Harrison Ford on a pretty good adaptation of Jack London's novel, The Call of the Wild, that I saw. Um, so, I guess Ford is all on board with James Mangold, and 
David Kep leaves again after Spielberg steps down. And now uh, we get the COVID pandemic and Disney had wanted the film to go into production, but now the COVID situation gave more time. And this is where I think maybe we start to wander into the weeds here. So now in the pandemic, we get a new screenplay. Okay. Mangold says, quote, I wanted to really retool the existing script pretty aggressively, almost entirely. So um, we get the new script and it has this, uh, this Archimedes dial. And uh, again, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, this stuff doesn't need to make sense. I mean, it's Indiana Jones, okay? Like Nazi mel- face melting things flew out of a gold chest. Like I, I don't need verisimilitude in a in a Indiana Jones movie. But I do need some like ability to pace action and story. That would be great. So that's the tortured history. Um, and that's where we, I, I guess that's the, the real issue has to be with the script, right? Because that's the story that's on the screen. Those are the choices that are greenlit by Disney. And those things that are on the screen, although Spielberg and Lucas were executive producers, and it sounds like Spielberg was involved and gave notes and watched cuts and did all that stuff. It's just different. I mean, James Mangold, interesting director, made some interesting films, but I mean, he's not Steven Spielberg. No one is. And to me, the fact that Steven Spielberg decided not to do this speaks to what he saw on the page. And, and wasn't ready to say, let's do this. Because people that stick around for a long, long time and have a, de- a developed sixth sense about which projects to say yes to, but more importantly, which ones to say no to. And you'd have to say that Spielberg dodged a bullet here with this film. Now, I, I read a thing in the pre-release prep. There were two things that happened in pre-release where I thought, "Uh uh-oh, because the first thing was the reception that the film got at the Cannes Film Festival, (laughs) which admittedly, ridiculously, every year when the Cannes Film Festival comes around in May, there's this ludicrous measuring stick which starts appearing in press about the big films that are premiering at the Cannes Film Festival. And the ludicrous measuring stick is the length of the standing ovation. So it's like, oh, uh-oh, Indiana Jones only got a seven-minute standing ovation, whereas whatever the hell that Johnny Depp film was got like a 14-minute standing ovation, and this film got a 20-minute standing ovation, Scorsese's film with uh, DiCaprio, Killers of the Flower Moon, got a 16-minute standing ovation. Like, this is the math of the Cannes Film Festival. And it literally was reported. Like, oh, oh, this is not a good sign. And I have to say, I wonder if you did a comparison of the length of the standing ovations compared to reception in box office. Is there a correlation? It would be fascinating if there was. I mean, it's an audience. Admittedly, it's a film-centric audience. But 
again, people are primed to love this movie. So it's almost like it's a difficult proposition because if they don't love it, it's worse than for a movie that no one is familiar with to have the similar reaction. Because it's it's like going to see Jerry Seinfeld or Dave Chappelle. Like you are primed for them to kill, right? You paid your money. You're going to see Jerry Seinfeld. You're going to see Dave Chappelle. You are going to laugh, whether they're funny or not. This is something Seinfeld talked about in his excellent documentary about putting together his new act that came out a few years ago. I recommend that. He talks about that in this documentary. He's like, he's not fooled. He knows. He knows what the cheap laughs are, and he knows what the real laughs are. Same thing with this kind of a movie. I'm not saying it's not difficult. I think it's the hardest thing in the world to get right. But it's almost like it's better not to do it and get it wrong than to do it and get it wrong. So anyway, that was the first indication, which was this short and tepid uh, standing ovation (laughs) at the Cannes Film Festival. I remember thinking, eee, that's not a good sign. Um, And that was the first thing. Then I read... James Mangold talk about Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character. And this was the second thing that happened where I thought, "Uh uh-oh. Because, anyway, here's what he said. Mangold referred the actress, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, to Barbara Stanwyck's performance as Jean Harrington in The Lady Eve from 1941 as a key reference point. Now... Kudos to Mangold for being a a student of old Hollywood, but (laughs) could Phoebe Waller-Bridge and her pop cultural presence in the world and Barbara Stanwyck's performance as Jean Harrington in 1941's The Lady Eve have anything less to do with each other? It's just, I read that and I thought, oh dear. Someone got the ability to go down that kind of a rabbit hole and never have someone in the production or the studio kind of count uh, course correct. Because I have to say, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character is one of the biggest problems in this movie. It's so not, it's not a real, it's not a character. It, it, it's not, it, it somehow for all the goodwill, again, that Phoebe Waller-Bridge contains. People want to love her. People do love her. People love what she represents. People love Fleabag. But this character never coalesces throughout the film. And also, more critically, has zero chemistry with Indiana Jones. Now, we don't want them to have romantic chemistry because Harrison Ford is 80 years old. She's the daughter of his former compatriot back in the Nazi WW2 days. So it's not like we're looking for that kind of chemistry. But one wonders, and I thought when I'd first heard this cast announced before we knew the details of the plot, I heard Phoebe Waller-Bridge's name and I thought, oh, I see what they're going to do. She's going to be Indiana Jones. The baton will be passed. 
given that the character's name is Indiana, you could have a female Indiana Jones. And however they create the connection, this is the perfect person to do this type of globe-trotting, swashbuckling, action, comedy, gag-oriented stuff, right? Come to find out, that's not what we're doing. And her muddled reasons for betraying indie they're trying to do this thing that you know used to be a thing which is like the character who is totally selfish and self-centered and only in it for the money like a bogart type 1940s character who secretly has a heart of gold and comes around in the end but it just doesn't have any resonance for today's audience in that way and the character is written on the page and as portrayed on the screen it never makes a connection and so that's a big disappointment. I mean, we all said to each other after the movie, I said, it's astonishing to me that we just watched two hours and 34 minutes of Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And I didn't laugh once. There are no zingers. There are no great one-liners. And, and you just can't have that. It's crazy. Other cast members are great. I loved Boyd Holbrook. I thought he was really uh, popped off the screen as... Uh, this kind of corrupted CIA agent. I guess I'd seen him in a couple things. I think I'd seen him in some Narcos episodes, but um, this this is a great example of someone who does very well for themselves in a film that's otherwise a, a bit of a muddled mess. He really, um, really stands out and and I think creates some unique opportunities for himself. And he... It quits himself quite well. It's bizarre that you're going to ask yourself while you're watching the film, like, wait a minute, is that Antonio Banderas in that mid, that tiny little role? Why? <laughs> Why is his charisma squandered in this role? On and on and on. It's just a lot of mistakes that no one corrected. And I don't know where they come from. But I'm pretty clear that this is the film that Mangold wanted, and it's pretty clear it would be the film that Harrison Ford wanted, right? Because he's the one who has the most control, probably, over, over what is and what isn't. He's the one who said you should hire James Mangold. Well, there you go. James Mangold gets the seal of approval, and the studio is not really going to meddle between Mangold and risk pissing off Harrison Ford. So I like Mads Mikkelsen in the film, although I don't understand the plot point. I think all the fan service stuff, it's not for me to speak to. It didn't do anything for me because I'm not that kind of fan. I'm not going to freak out when I see John Reese davis return as Salah. I thought the character was kind of icky, frankly. It just seemed kind of weird. Um, you know... The ending of the film, uh, again, okay. We've talked about this before. You know how every TV show is about grief and loss and trauma? Guess what? So is Indiana Jones now. <laughs> Indiana Jones is mired in grief, loss, and trauma, which registers so little 
to the average viewer, and I put myself in that category. I'm an average Indiana Jones viewer. I've seen all the movies, but I don't, I can't recite them to you. I can't TikTok the canon. But as we see a um, bereft, wounded, hollowed out Indiana in his sad little apartment in 1969, and then you real, and then at some point it's revealed like, oh yeah, my son died in the Vietnam War. I never even connected that to Shia's character, by the way. Like, it completely escaped me until after the movie. So, like, that's the lack of, like, connective tissue here for the average viewer. And again, I get it. You got to have some fan service, but not at the expense of sensibility in following the plot. And it's the same thing. Like, you've heard me talk on the pod many, many times. I love Karen Allen. I think she is one of the most interesting actors of the 70s, the 80s. And her chemistry with Harrison Ford is undeniable um, in the original movies. But here, she's an afterthought, literally. Like after the movie is over, after all the events in the film, she gets a moment. And what does she get as a moment? the same moment she had in the previous films, like almost verbatim. And there's no emotional heft to it. You're not moved. You're not crying. You're not happy for them. It doesn't mean anything because she's been absent for two hours and 30 minutes. So that felt cheap. That felt like oh, let me tack this on after the events of the film's narrative have concluded so that we tick this fan service box and give this character the happy ending he's deserved. Well, he deserved it to begin with. I mean, you could go any number of ways to eradicate Shia LaBeouf from the Indiana Jones universe if that's what you wanted to do without killing the character. But seeing Indy as like every other character in every other thing I'm wounded. I am suffering loss. I am traumatized. Yeah, 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 we get it. But there isn't a scene in the film where Indy's beaten, where the old Indy would have risen up and solved the problem. We don't even get that hackneyed trope of the beaten down character who only in the worst moment of his life finds himself again and returns to form. I was emailing with Bruce, my uh, multi-time guest on the podcast, because he um, had emailed me about seeing the film and he wanted to know what I thought about it and I hadn't seen it yet. So we traded a couple emails and let me just see what he said, because I I thought it was instructive. you know, he 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 claimed that this the scene in the film where Indy doesn't want to return to his present day, like he wants to stay in the time of Archimedes. And I actually was rooting for him to stay. <laughs> I was like, this is like how so how funny and convoluted the script is, is it doesn't even really know how it wants to manipulate you emotionally. Like there's this whole thing where they go back erroneously to, I don't know what time it is, 2 BC or something. Like they're supposed to go to 1939, but they go to like, I don't know, 239 BC, something, something that ends in a 39. I don't even know. 
Anyway, they end up with Archimedes and some battle of Syracuse, which I have no idea what that is either. And neither do you. Um, anyway, he's there and they meet Archimedes. It's this hor- it's, it's embarrassing. And, and he wants to stay. And I'm like, great. I love that. Let's have him stay. Like, here's a guy who loves history and loves adventure. And what does he have? Apparently he's got nothing in 1969 that's worth living for. So why don't you let the guy stay? And then, of course, as Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character points out, well, you know, it's like that thing. If you pluck one blade of grass in BC 239, uh, Hitler will reign forever. I mean, I don't know, but that's why he can't stay. That's why he's got to go back to 1969. And the only way to make that worthwhile is to bring back Karen Allen. So she's like a device, not even a person. That's what's really offensive to me. She's a device. And... I just thought she deserved better. And it has to be said, I guess Mangold used a lot of practical sets for this, but the the huge set piece that goes on for about 25 minutes that opens the film, I just thought the CGI of this, the de-aging of Ford, all of that stuff just didn't work for me. It's kind of like when you're de-aging in a movie like this, it should be telling you that you don't need to make this movie. If all you're doing is going back to what we loved in 81, well, we have that. You're not going to make it again. So why spend 30 minutes in the de-aged Indiana Jones universe? That's bringing us back to the past in a way that I guess we can't because Harrison Ford is now 80. But to me, that puts the onus on the screenwriters and the filmmakers to figure that out. Like, that's what, you, that's what you're there for. Figure out a way to make that work. And Harrison Ford acquits himself incredibly well in the film. It's incredible for him to do what he does at age 80. Don't get me wrong. He's always watchable, but you want to talk about Harrison Ford reprising an iconic character from cinematic history and doing it right and being in a film surrounded by other people who were doing it right. That is Blade Runner 2049, which had all of the emotional underpinnings missing from this Indiana Jones outing, okay? When he appears at the end, it has heart-rending emotional appeal because he's feeling it as an actor. You can tell. You can tell. And in that construct, the loss, the trauma, the, the, the love that he lost, that's something we never got to experience in the original Blade Runner. And the way it's utilized in 2049 is the way it should have been utilized in something like this. And now pointedly, what, what does that mean? It means that Ryan Gosling's character in 2049 is the main character of the film, and Harrison Ford has to do something he can... And I said when the movie came out, he should have won an Academy Award for that role, Harrison Ford. He should have won Best Supporting Actor for Blade Runner 2049. Because let me tell you, it's hard to fucking do, to own and contain all of that in a limited manner on screen, in the handful of scenes. 
but he did it. And it's more powerful that he did it in a handful of scenes than had he been in the whole movie, running around, blasting people. You know what I mean? It would have, that would have been cheap. And I think the difference is a real auteur, creative artist approach to Blade Runner 2049. And this to me is just, it's a more commercial property. It's a more, uh, it's a less intellectual property. It's most importantly, doesn't really have anything to say about how we live today. And I think that's what it's trying to do. So tragically, you know, do you go to Indiana Jones films to be taught something? I mean, Blade Runner 2040, Blade Runner is a dis, dystopian alternative reality science fiction neo-noir that told us so much about the way we lived at the time it came out, changed cinema forever, remains as iconic as ever. Its influence is seen, as we talked about in the episode that Bruce and I did about Blade Runner, it's seen today in every TV show, clothing line, et cetera, et cetera. The legacy lives on forever. And Blade Runner 2049 was not only the dynamic and worthy sequel, but it was wholly original. It built upon the world created, and it also had something to say about how we live today. And Indiana Jones just tries to do all this stuff that an Indiana Jones movie, to me, shouldn't do. And so... As Bruce said in his first email, he said, mostly, what do he say? He said, you know, its main problem is it's not enough fun. And I, and I completely agree with him. That's the real problem. It's just not fun. And I know there's going to be the indie honks who don't care. They love it. They will defend it. And they should. There just aren't enough of them to justify spending $300 million to make this movie. So they'll be happy. Maybe you'll be happy. Maybe you'll find something to love in this film. I was disappointed. And I think there's going to be a lot more written about how this came to be. And I think as the streamers and as the network groups all struggle in this year, 2023, Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, all of these places are facing significant threats to their business. Cost-cutting is taking place. ESPN just laid off pretty much every bold-faced name you could name on their roster of commentators and announcers and broadcasters, all to save money. Warner Brothers Discovery, all to save money. So what happens at Disney in the movie division going forward? What's the next iteration of Indiana Jones, because I can guarantee you this is not the last Indiana Jones movie, not by a long shot. I personally would love to see Phoebe Waller-Bridge take the central role and have the film built around her. Like if we don't have to see Harrison Ford anymore because this is his swan song, um, and it certainly feels that way, 
in the way that the film concludes. We've sent him, we've set him off onto a sunshine setting horizon with his wife together mourning the loss of their son. Um, but it doesn't feel like he needs to come back except maybe in a crowd pleasing cameo or, or something, but it doesn't feel like he needs to be in the film all the way through as he was in this film. And maybe that's the first time the franchise can be free in a way to find itself again. It will probably get that chance because you just don't discard intellectual property of the sort of Indiana Jones quite so callously. So anyway, it bothers me when things like this are bad. It bothers me more than it should. I care. And I can't pretend to be entertained when I am not. My hopes are now set on the Mission Impossible release of July 12th. And I'm going to be very curious to see, because I'm going into that, that movie the exact same way I went into this movie, which is psyched. I am so excited I get to see this for me, my generation on a big screen. And I'll be very curious to see what the reaction is when the new Mission Impossible film ends. I, I suspect it's that Tom Cruise will not have gotten it wrong because I just don't think he does that. And the crowd-pleasing nature of Top Gun Maverick showed such command of fan service. And as Spielberg himself famously said to Cruz, you saved going to the movies. Thank you. <laughs> and it's not an exaggeration. So I'll be curious to hear and feel and experience what that movie is like. And I'll be here to tell you about it on another episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back shortly next week. I plan an episode, I promise you. Um, I'm gonna be doing an episode about listening to music. I know. It may or may not have some cin cinematic underpinnings, but it's relevant to my life over the last few months. It's something I've been thinking a lot about. And although I do the podcast for you, I also do it for myself. And I want to document some experiences I've had so far this summer with music, with a community of people coming together to experience music together. And a question I've been asking people about how they listen to music. And I've been just curious about this and I want to just get it out and, and then move on. So that's probably going to be my next episode coming out next week. It's Thursday as I record this. I have no reason not to just put it out tomorrow morning. So I think I'm going to do that. Anyway. I appreciate you listening so much. Thank you so much. I will be back shortly with a new episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Mm -hmm.